Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Hello, and welcome to Killer Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Girard, and my guest today is Jessica Knoll. Jessica is the New York Times bestselling author of The Favorite Sister and Lucky's Girl Live, now a major motion picture from Netflix starring Mila Kunis. She has been a senior editor at Cosmopolitan and the, artic- and the articles editor at Self. She grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia and graduated from the Shipley School in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and from Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and their bulldog. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's so exciting. I'm so excited to talk about this. And I, I showed Jessica beforehand, but those of you who've been watching the podcast know when I really, really love a book, it has got a million little tabs like this one That does. looks like a very well-loved book, so I'm very it, touched. Thank you. Very, very well-loved. I I totally devoured it, and I there's so many moments I want to go back to. But before I get gush all over it, we talk about the process and your whole writing, incredible writing career. Tell our listeners about Bright Young Women. So Bright Young Women is a fictional reimagining of the final murderous spree of our country's most famous serial killer. Um, Some say he was our first celebrity serial killer, but I tell it from a point of view we haven't gotten before, which is I imagine what it must have been like for the women who survived him and the women who did not. Yes, it's so wonderful. And there there were so many moments. Um, well, let's talk about it because I want to, so it's, it's set in two points of view. Um, it's Pamela and Ruth. And I have a, and they actually don't ever meet Pamela and Ruth. Yeah. Although yeah. they both have experiences with, um, as you said, this um, wildly insane um, killer. Uh, tell us, so did you start with one or the other? How does this, how did the story sort of take shape for you? Yeah. So initially, actually, Ruth was my first character, and she was kind of born from this kind of deep-rooted fear I have that seems to kind of crop up whenever I have something really exciting uh, on the horizon. My immediate anxiety, and I I think what it is, is like, it's always this knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, something really good is happening but do I really deserve this? Is something bad going to happen to me? Is the other shoe going to drop? Is there going to be some way that I don't get to enjoy this thing I'm really excited about? And for me, that happened with the publication of my first book, Luckiest Girl Alive, because as I'm sure you're familiar with, the time between you get a book deal and when it it's out and published into the world can be quite a while. So for me, it was like 18 months. So I had really 18 months to sit around and fret that like, God forbid something happened and I don't get to see this dream of mine realized. And then I had a friend a couple of years later confess to me, she was getting married and she was really, really excited about her wedding. And she was like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I keep having this anxiety that like something's going to happen to me and I'm not going to get to enjoy my wedding. And I was like, wow, this, there's something in the air here. And mm-hmm. so initially the idea was, you know, that the women that this guy targeted targeted 
were all young and had really exciting, promising futures ahead of them. And they had lots of things that they were so excited about. And I thought, how terrible that they didn't get to realize them. So I wanted to conceive of a character who um, is really finding herself, who is finally coming out of a tough place, um, who is living life for her, you know, for herself, um, figuring out who she is and what she wants. And to have that ripped away from her um, before she gets to enjoy it. To me, that felt like the ultimate tragedy of this case that really hasn't been explored or talked about before. The, it was always the tragedy of this case, the way it was discussed at the time, was that this guy was super smart and he had everything going for him, but yet he went and committed these crimes and didn't get to realize his full potential. That was actually how the press spoke about <laughs> it. So I wanted to flip this Yes. Up. Yes, like appropriately flip it. So it's yeah. interesting that you talk about that because I do think that there's, I kind of wonder sometimes why some of us write the kinds of books we write, right? I mean, the story is obviously, we are compelled to tell stories, but why is it that we are compelled to tell the kinds of stories that we are, that we tell? So yeah. talk about that. We even went back before it sounds like we, you, I'm sort of a worst case scenario thinker. That's how I always, I look at the world and similarly, I'm like, some, you know, I'm going to die or I'm going to, you know, someone's going to get hurt or whatever it is. I always imagine the worst thing happening. So that I think is what led, led me to write suspense. So what about, you know, is this where this comes from? Like with Luckiest Girl Alive, when you sat down to write that first book, what, or maybe that wasn't even the first book. So tell us about that, you know, yeah. how, no, how Luckiest you started. Girl Alive was the first book and Definitely, you know, the fact that that, you know, the voice of Ani Finelli, who's my protagonist in Luckiest Girl Alive, that that, you know, I've said in past interviews, like it just poured out of me. Um, so I have had to examine why that is, why this comes so easily to me, why this is what I dabble in, you know, what I like to watch, what I like to read, what I like to write myself. And definitely discuss this at length in therapy You're right, and, right. Um, <laughs> and mm. sadly I come from a place of pain myself that's mm -hmm. just my history um which I've also been very open about and I am often trying to make sense of painful things that happen to me in my writing I'm I'm trying to make sense of why this happened to me how it affected my life and so I think that when I step, take a big step back, especially with this book, although it's inspired by real life events, um, I can see now that what I was trying to grapple with at the time was a sense of unresolved grief around trauma. And what do you do when you're denied justice, which a lot of the victims in these cases were. And that's something I can speak very intimately to um, so I know that that's why these are the things I write about, you know, because right. these are the things that are kind of constantly roiling me in me at all times. Right. Right. Cause you've experienced it firsthand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and I, one of the other things I thought was really interesting about sort of a, a lot of the female characters in this book were in sort of the roles of their parents, right? There's yeah. particularly mothers, right? I mean, there yeah. is. And as a mother of a 23-year-old woman now, I feel like, oh, shit. Like, I, I don't know. There's a way to, like, not mess them up. There's obviously ways to not yeah. completely mess them up. But, like, 
I think about that and that's obviously a role in your stories too. So can yeah. you, you know, speak to that and why, yeah. how we do this? Well, I think that it's, you know, we, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. Um, that's just, and I think that women tend to experience pressure that they should be perfect. So it's like, it's also, I don't mean to like come down so hard on moms because it's just hard, you know, right. whether, whether you're a daughter or a mother, you know, like it's, these are difficult roles to, to kind of get right, you know? And I think we all, I think most parents love their kids to death and everyone wants to just do as little harm as possible, you know, like nothing is, and that's really the the case, especially for Pamela and her relationship with her mother, you know, her mother doesn't know how to show her love and her mother doesn't know how to be honest with her and to connect with her. Mm -hmm. And um, I think just as I've gotten older and become, you know, more reflective of who I am and where I come from, I see that everything, you know, everything that kind of plays out in childhood, even though like I had a really good childhood, I didn't have right. a bad childhood, but I had a good childhood. Um, there's still things that like I see as patterns um, as an adult playing out and choices that I make that are coming from a place of like unawareness mm -hmm. about my own patterning. So I think I'm always fascinated by this idea of like not fate, but of the unconscious and that until we make that conscience, like we we think that it's fate. That's a, that Carl Jung quote, you know, mm -hmm. that's something that was like a real eye opener for me in my own life. So, um, I try and kind of hew those connections, um, between the conscious and the unconscious in my characters as well. Yeah. And I think there's something, I mean, I don't think you're hard on moms. I do think we're hard women are hard on each other yeah. and, and we're on, hard on ourselves and we're hard on ourselves much <laughs> harder. I think than our male counterparts in general. Yes. Um, and I think the thing that was interesting and what I really appreciated about Pamela was when we learned and no spoilers in this show. So you have to go read the book, but when we learned sort of what her mother experienced, yeah. right. Then all of a sudden we're like, Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. this is, there is a real reason why her mother can't connect and it's a protective device yeah. that we all have. And, the, and even, you know, Ruth's mother, who I think is less sympathetic, you yes. still can imagine that she sacrificed, like there's sort of this idea that we sacrifice for so long as yeah. women that all of a sudden now we're like, okay, we, our children are even just a, like able to tie their own shoes. And we're like, okay, now is it time that I get a break? I get my own space. I get, and you don't really, I think once yeah. you're a parent, you're sort of a parent forever. And that's another version of sacrifice. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of a continuing pattern. Like you said, that we just, we, it's really hard to escape for women. Yeah. Yeah. And I really wanted with Ruth's relationship with her mother in particular, what I really wanted to come out of that is this idea that the role that she played in her family was to kind of be the peacemaker and yeah. to make everyone feel really good and really taken care of because that's something that I can relate to because that was so important to her overall arc in that when she's finally approached by the killer in the end, it's not so what drove me nuts was this narrative that he was able to convince his victims to go off with him because he was so charming and good looking. And it's like, 
no, actually, he posed as injured most of the time. Right. Because he was taking advantage of a, a kind of society that conditions women to be polite, to say yes, yes and yes. to give people help when they to ask take care. Yes, to take exactly. Care. He came to her and asked for her help. Yes. And so I wanted it not just to be like, I think women overall, even in 2023, struggle. I know I do struggle with saying no and setting boundaries. Yes. So not only that, just as like a general thing we struggle with, but she comes from a family where she's not expected to say no. And that right. this, this determined what happened to her far more than who he was right. and how great he looked in tennis whites, which is the right. way it was written about at the time. Right, right. It's such an interesting time too. I feel like, you know, and particular and Tina is a you know sort of a secondary but also very primary character. She just doesn't have a point of view in the book. And she's yet another woman who is, you know, both empowered and you know fighting this constant battle in the you know that was obviously present in the seventies, still exists today. Oh, where we yeah. are, do we get to be who we want to be? You know, if we don't want to conform to society's you know expectations of us and. Mm -hmm. You know, she's considered a little insane because she's outspoken, because she's strong about and because she's interested in pursuing very you know, closely what happened to her friend. So it is yeah. um, there is so much there's and this is what I love about the book, which is why there are you know, a million tabs in my story is that there are all these lines you know, you, you, where you really get into these perspectives and realize all the ways in which women are kind of fucked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, pardon the, the French. It's just we're hard to be a woman like it's, it's just can be hard in the world to be a woman you know like it's hard it, yeah and to just kind of feel at peace with yourself and your choices it's like a constant for me it's a constant work in progress and just from talking to my friends I know it's something that you know we're all, all of us struggling with yeah all struggling with and and it does and it is interesting to me that in many ways I thought it was that's one of the things you point out which we know is 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 prevalent is the way in which sort of you know the patriarch or men make us you know isolate us from one another too right I mean like we talk mm -hmm. about the you know the the judge who is you know the eventually is the, the trial judge when the defendant defends himself and sort of the last and he also it's I mean, he pushes that the the case in a direction that it never should have gone. Yeah. And he becomes another person who sort of pins pits women against one another, makes Pamela doubt herself, mm -hmm. um, gives the def this this serial killer all this like, gee shucks, you would have been a great. I would have loved to have you at my right. lot. Like just it's like so... I have no animosity toward you. It's like well, great, but also why should you? Because it he didn't kill your daughter, you know, right. why would you make that statement with the families in the courtroom? That's a real yeah. thing. You know, this is fiction, but there is some moments in that, you know, I wrote this in response to real things that were said and that happened. And that was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about the process of this because you've, you know, you've obviously you've fictionalized a lot of it. And mm -hmm. so how did you, you know, you did all this research first, I'm mm -hmm. assuming, tell us about that. And, and you know, what at what point were you like I you'd experienced the case or you'd reread about it or it came back up because of course we're still talking about it all these years later that you were like I want to I want to I want to do justice to the story 
Yeah. So it was with the new docu-series that came out in 2019, which with the previously unheard audio recordings Interesting. Um, of this serial killer. And um, I watched it, you know, a lot of people watched it. There was a lot of discourse around it. And that was the first time I saw the, the judge's remarks that he made when he sentenced him to die by the electric chair. And he called him a bright young man. And I was just so, you know, indignant that he made those remarks. And I just got interested in the case and started reading about it. And then what, what kind of the moment I realized like, oh, wait, I think there's a story here was when I was reading the actual transcripts and I realized, well, not only did the judge make these really disgusting misogynistic remarks, but like what the documentary actually didn't include that I think is as pertinent to this part of the story is that he was allowed to speak for like 45 minutes after the, the, this was before uh, victims and family members were allowed to make impact. This was before the dawn of the impacts, the victim impact statement. So he got the floor for 30 to 45 minutes and reading what he had to say, I was like, this is your bright young man who yeah. practiced law and had this amazing future. He sounded nutso. He sounded right. like one of those doomsday people that like walks around on a street corner with like a sign over their head. That's like, are you ready to meet your maker? You know, you have like repent, like it was nonsense that he was saying. And so this mm. idea that he was written about, like he had any sort of talent at the law, he had a very surface le level understanding of the law. He'd barely been a law student and he had to falsify his transcripts to be admitted to law school. So the fact that like he was written about in these newspaper, I mean, believe me, the research I did pulling up these old newspaper articles, like what these like very respectable newspapers like the New York Times were writing about him, calling him Kennedy-esque and saying how in intelligent he was. I was like, like, I read all the transcripts, like, right. He's an true. idiot. Right. Yeah. Is it because you think that it's just like more interesting to read about somebody who is like smart and clever? All of the headlines that were written, the all they were all, or sorry, all the bylines I read were by men. And yeah. I just, I, I don't, it's not even like, I'm like one person is responsible for this, or I hold anyone accountable. I really do think it's that thing that everyone talks about where you're like, this is why it's important to have for a range of people, um, from different backgrounds and genders to have a seat at the table because everyone has a different experience in the world and can be the one to say like, Hey, maybe maybe this women weren't that charmed by this guy and maybe right. that like if someone comes to you on crutches and is like I really need your help that like being a woman in the world you you kind of feel compelled to say yes you know like I, mm -hmm. I do wonder if it was just a result of that of like just a lack of kind of representation in the press at the time yeah which makes total sense and in fact that brings me to sort of the, the idea of Carl in the book who yeah. is the reporter and I, you know, or, or the journalist. And I thought that was another, like, I mean, it was just, and the fact that you did all these beautiful layers, I mean, this is a massive undertaking this book. Um, and I saw, you know, when you, you started with Ruth and then you 
figured out you wanted a, a you know a secondary point of view like how you know how do you do that are you a, like it was like a massive spreadsheet what happens for you it was many 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 drafts and yeah. many many submissions to my editor and thinking I pulled it off this time and then a couple of weeks later getting one of those kind of tersely worded emails that's like hey let's talk later and you're like uh, oh, this can't be good. right you're like this so, time down. Um, so, yeah I, I really was so um my head was just really spinning with this one yeah. I'll say that so the yeah. fact that you're having a response like this it it's almost amazing to me because it was it was a real mind f to write this book yeah and it really turned me around upside down all the ways um and there were days i thought i might need to shelve this and come back to it because i just can't get my arms around it so it's hard to even remember at what point. <laughs> I, at one point there were three point of views there was another victim and then we narrowed it down I always knew I needed someone in Tallahassee as mm -hmm. part of those attacks because that was the kind of book that was when he was caught I just Pamela wasn't always Pamela there was like a different sorority mm -hmm. sister telling the story so things there were lots of attempts that didn't work and lots of pages thrown in the trash to get mm -hmm. to this point. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you've succeeded. I think that's an, I mean, so most of us, like, you know, I always think about like a book a year and this kind of undertaking is not a one year undertaking. So yeah. I appreciate that you didn't do it in a year because I don't know how it wouldn't have turned out to be this book. So that's amazing. Yeah. But I also am not used to like in my world, everything is like, you know, it is a shorter, even, you know, you're writing a draft in six or eight months and then you're cleaning it up. So it's like the idea of being with something for years. I mean, that's right. I mean, I know this happens for a lot of literary authors and for sure this is a more, you know, it's a literary thriller, but how, how do you, I mean, how do you keep track? Are you in it every day? Are you like, you know, are you, is it bits and spurts? How does it work? I, I have to be in it almost every day. Like I can't be working on multiple things at one time. So when I was in this, I was in this, there were periods of time I did have to set it aside because obviously, yes, I've been with this for several years and we went into production on the Luckiest Girl Alive movie in the summer of 2021. So that was a period of time where like four months, I was like, I just can't look at this. And ultimately, right. as as worried as I was to step away from it because I was like, I'm going to lose the thread or like there's still so much work to be done and this is a huge chunk of time to like lose. Um, ultimately, space is what you need in situations mm -hmm. like this. It's just really hard to give it to yourself because I think I still have this mentality of like, if I just work harder and more hours and more words, I'll figure it out. But it's it it almost comes back to bite you in the ass because I think you just end up making yourself absolutely cross-eyed to the point where you don't have space and you don't have clear eyes. I think it, that forced break probably did wonders for, for you and for the book. You know, I, that's the first time anyone said it like that, but I think ultimately that was probably the best thing that could have happened. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, I mean, I really think it is powerful. I do, I do think it's interesting. I mean, first of all, the fact that you have an editor who will 
force you back to the table, which I don't think a lot of people do. I think that's a huge gift. And the fact that you clearly earn that because you're, you're basically like, you're not like, I'm done. Like, this is it. This is the last draft. If that editor sent that back, you're like, okay, here we go again. Right. Because yeah. in the end it's to the service of the story. It is. And I knew that every time she was pushing back on me, I'm like, this is because it needs it. You know, mm -hmm. like if she is saying this, I respect her and I know that it's not doing what I'm hoping it's doing. It's just not there yet. Yeah. But you got there and that is yeah. amazing. So tell us, you know, I mean, thank it, you, Mary Sue Rucci. She's the best. Yes. Love her I so mean, much. major props to her. <laughs> yeah. And she's, you know, I know she's an incredible editor for, for a yeah. bunch of people, but this is, I mean, it really is such a, such a, such a powerful story. So tell us a little bit about like, so you had such a huge, I always think about this when, you know, people have the massive debut that was so successful and wonderful. Then, then after that, of course, it's like, oh shit, what, you know, what do I do? Yeah. So how was that experience of your sophomore book? And, you know, tough, mm -hmm. really tough. Um, I, I love my second book, The Favorite Sister. I'm so proud of it, but it didn't connect with readers to the level that Luckiest Girl Alive did. And, you know, I remember even before Luckiest Girl came out and I was like, I really want it to do well. And I remember friends in the industry and other writers saying like, of course, and I think it will, you know, it's an amazing book, but like, FYI, if it doesn't, you know, the, there's the flip side of that is like, you have a career that you build on, you know, mm -hmm. and then you don't have the sophomore effort where you feel like you have to top your first book. I mean, that is a real thing, you know, oh, so it's like, such a pressure. Yeah. I wouldn't ask to do anything different, but it is, a, it, there's a bit of a trade-off that goes on where it's like, if you do get that kind of success out of the gate, there is a level of there's a level of eyes on you that I think mm -hmm. can mess with you and mess with your creative process and um, and just your passion for what you're doing because you're like, now I'm writing for the market. Whereas <sighs> before I didn't have any expectation. I was just mm -hmm. like, okay, I want to write a thriller because this is what I like. This is what I like to read and- mm -hmm. This is a this is the right space for me, and this is kind of the voice that I have. Um, but beyond that, I wasn't like, you know, I, I didn't have any knowledge, you know, I didn't have any context. I was just like, I hope it people like this book. You know? Right, right. And the second one, you have all these markers of success and you have a mm. idea about how the sausage is made, and like it just can like worm its way into your brain. Um, and it can be hard to shrug off. And I definitely had that experience. Oh, for sure. And one of the things I think that is, you know, that's super powerful is the idea that this, you know, the kind of books you're writing, which, which are so character, I mean, they're plot driven, but they're really care. These are, this is a very yeah. character driven book and it, 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 re it requires this sort of, um, vulnerability of the writer to get into the place where you can create these really relatable whether or not they're likable or whatever relatable characters and that is like pulling open your chest and exposing your heart to sort of the room it is yeah and I think I felt like I had done that with luckiest girl alive and then I was like I don't know how to tell a story unless it's character driven but I didn't feel like I had enough time to kind of like grow as a person mm -hmm. to figure out like what it like who are my new characters 
what is it that I'm, you know, that I, that I've learned in life that I can kind of instill in them? What's my new wisdom? I have a lot more wisdom now than I did in 2015 because it's of course like we're almost coming up on 10 years, you know, Mm -hmm. but to sit down and write a new book with a new cast of characters only a year later, it just still felt like I hadn't, I hadn't taken enough of a step away to like, just process and right <laughs> breathe right have a, right yeah. have a moment to breathe but it is yeah. so just so what do you tell yourself because of course I don't think that part ever leaves us like yeah. you know now that you you know you've had the big you had a big book and then you had a less big book if we can say that and then I think you're about to have a really big book and so not the question not yeah, wood, fair. You have wood near you. <laughs> yeah I do I'm, I'm knocking I'm knocking um and I you know I'm so I, the question is like, so when you wake up, you know, in a month or whatever, and you're, and you probably, I don't know if you're already working on something, which I think is another thing we, as writers are like, you barely get to sort of taste the champagne before you're yeah. like, what's, what's next? So, you know, how do you, how do you sort of just show up again and again and again? And what do you tell yourself in the moments when you're like, you know, it feels like, because I mean, we all feel like frauds at, in moments, right? So what do you tell yourself on those days when you're like, can I do this again? Fortunately, I do have a draft of my next book and it does feel like a departure for me in the sense, in the way that this one was a bit of a departure Mm -hmm. because it's set, it's not set in a contemporary time period. Um, This one is a little bit on the spicier side, Mm. (laughs) the new one. So um, I, but I just have this idea that I feel really strongly about. I have a, you know, our crappy first draft that we write and there's still a lot of work to be done but I I actually what I think I think I'm I think I'm catching my stride yeah in terms of my creative process in that like I've had this idea I've been kind of marinating on it for a while I kind of caught a break I wrote a really quick fast draft set it sent it to my editor there's a lot of work that needs to be done but like, I'm not working on it at the moment. I'm working on getting this one out in the world. Of course, of course. Kind of, I'm not panicking about it. I'm like, space is good for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, space is good. So I'm just going to let her notes and her response to it kind of live in my head while I'm doing yeah. things. And then I'll come back to it fresh. So I think the fact that like, I just am more accepting of my prog- of my process and how I write and how I need time and mm-hmm. how it like to think about things and how ultimately it doesn't slow me down. I mm-hmm. used to think if I'm not writing every day, I'm, I'm falling behind. Yeah. But I just realized that like a lot of the germinating is like just as important to like actually getting a word count down on the page for me. Um, well, I think it's true for all of us because that's the yeah. time it's sort of like, if you, you know, that's when the, if a glass is partially cracked, that's when the sort of yeah. liquid really seeps into those little crevices and shows us what, you know, what more can be done. And I think that's a hundred percent true. And I don't think many of us give ourselves the chance to really let things, cause we are, for, and there is a pulsing machine that says, yeah. well, you know, now I need it now. I need it now. Right. I need it now. Um, so that is super exciting. I mean, that's, and that's different, right? I'm assuming, you know, when you, did, you didn't, did you have a draft of, um, the favorite sister before Luckiest Girl Live was done? No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. 
right. Right. So now it's, I mean, so then are you sort of, are you somebody who has like a few things that sort of marinate in your mind or is it really like one at a time? Well, uh, the allowing myself to just kind of like have some ideas marinate my mind is a little bit of a new thing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I am just realizing I really do need that. So I'm trying to like, you know, bank a few things. Yeah. Um, I obviously do the screenwriting stuff too. I have other projects that are in development, but with the strike, you know, everything is like a I bit old. Yeah. So obviously the strike has been so devastating for so many people. Yeah. Um, and I hope that, you know, we get back to the table and negotiations can happen. I mean, I think that is happening. Um, Good. Yeah. But I, yeah. But um, everything is, everything's a bit on pause right now, which is like, I hate to say like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to see the the positive in that for me because right. it's not a positive experience for most people. This is a no. time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that to your point, like it maybe, and obviously those people who are not working and, and are worried about paying their mortgages or their rent, that's yeah. a huge deal. But in some ways, those moments, hopefully give us all the sort of clarity to realize that our work-life balance maybe wasn't quite right. And that, you know, if we can come back into something with a, like a fresh perspective, hopefully that will. Um, maybe for some people, like lucky people, you know, but I think yes. that there's just, just as many people who are just like, I really need to get back to work. Cause it's not just the writers. It's obviously all the below the line. I know. Terrible situation. I, I know. Now, yeah. did you have experience in screenwriting before Luckiest Girl or did you, I mean, you obviously, so um, that was your entree. Yeah. And how has that been? I mean, so most times, I'm, and then I'll let you go because I know you've got um, a photo shoot coming up. But tell me, you know, tell us about that because I think it's interesting. Usually, when a um, or often when an author sells um, a book to be developed, it doesn't. They're not so actively involved. So tell yeah. us how that came to be. I mean, I really credit Gillian Flynn for kind of she. There, she just like she set this model that I think like, I really admired her. I loved her writing. I loved her voice. Um, Seeing that she was the one to adapt Gone Girl. Like, I think this goes back to that adage, like, if you can see it, you can be it. And I was Mm -hmm. like, there's an author who adapted her own work to great acclaim. And like, she wasn't a screenwriter before that. Like, why can't I do it? You know? And I just really dug my heels in about it. I was like, it's you know this has been I know it's not usual but it's not something that's never happened before no I'm expressing a big passion and desire to like do this and let me try and so those were conversations I had with my agent where I was like you know because obviously it took some convincing with the producers and studio but ultimately they did decide to to let me try it and you know I showed aptitude at it. So yes. um, now I get to do both and I love it. I love yeah. this writing stuff. I really, I'm so happy that I have both of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoy them both uh, for different reasons and I hate them at times. Of course, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> but it, it's, and it's probably really interesting. I, you know, to get a chance to then distill your book to its very sort of you know, screen and where to cut and what, you know, what directions to give and how you sort of do all that. That must've been, I can imagine that's 
And it gives you more time in the same story, right? You get to sort of yeah. lengthen the opportunity to really explore the characters and, and then to share that with a, a larger audience. Because let's be honest, a lot more people watch TV than, than necessarily read the books. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> unfortunately or fortunately. Well, that is really, that is hugely exciting. Well, this was, I mean, I really did. And, and you know, I could open it and tell, give you like 10 of my favorite quotes, but I won't. I will just tell um, our listeners again that um, I just absolutely adored Bright Young Women. And I I did. I It made me stop. I think some one of the reasons I do the tabs is it makes me sort of think, okay, wait a minute. This is the part I love. This is a woman's voice I love. And most of them were, you know, women's voices, which you do an incredible job of sort of giving us the really hard insights on what it is to be a woman um, and, and from all different perspectives. So um, bravo. So it was Thank so you. wonderful to get to talk about this. I will send all this good stuff out into the world. But um, for those of you who not did not read Luckiest Girl Alive or Favorite Sister, you should really give Bright Young Women a chance. And then I bet you'll want to go back because it's a really powerful story. So Jessica, congratulations. Thank you, thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. This was Killer Women. I'm Danielle Gerard with Jessica Knoll today. And we will see you next time. Bye.